I thought it'd be good to <coughs> get my glasses so I can see. Um, take your Bibles, good authorized version. <laughs> good to give you an opportunity to um, really get a grasp of what we, we mean by the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. Because um, I've been doing this uh, Doctor of Ministry course uh, and um, part of the work is dealing with the Holy Spirit. And um, it's on spiritual warfare, which a lot of people have got caught up in um, the heresies of jumping up and down and trying to cast demons out and, you know, conquer demons over cities. None of it in the Bible, of course. It's just in people's imaginations. It's animism and magic. Christians shouldn't be involved in it. Uh, but unfortunately, because of ignorance of the Bible and the inability to read, which is the only excuse I can give them, uh, they've got involved in crazy things. And I wanted to just look at it from the point of view, Jesus, towards the end of his ministry, uh, put an emphasis on training his disciples. And... The whole of the training of his disciples were that they'd be witnesses. If you remember, I talked about it. You should be witnesses unto me. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he comes to make us a witness. But it's not a witness of a, a truth. It's a witness of a life. And um, when we deal with the things of the Holy Spirit, turn with me to um, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. Matthew 28. Uh, verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to, um, to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Uh, he, he makes it very plain. He says, look, go you therefore and teach. Now, the therefore is because all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now, if all power has been given to Jesus in heaven and earth, who else has got any power? Well, if you have all power, who else has got power? Whose hands is all power invested in? Jesus. So the idea and the notion, that this is post-Calvary, the idea and notion that the devil's got power is ridiculous. All power is given to Jesus. And he said to his disciples, because of that, you can go and teach all nations. You can go and teach 
and when you teach, you're to baptize. And um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That's what you're to do. It's to teach what I've commanded. And I think one of the things that's happened in the modern day is people are teaching what God never commanded to teach. Jesus said, teach what I taught. Teach what I've told you. And one of the kind of favorite scriptures that people pick up is, you know, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So what God says, we live by. And, and as I said before, uh, there's a lot in the Bible that God didn't say. And you have to understand that. Uh, there's things that Gamaliel said, there's things that Daniel said, there's things that Nehemiah said, there's things that Ezra said, there's things that Elijah said. But there's a lot of things that were said that weren't prophetic. Then there are prophetic words that are given which have power because God spoke them. They're eternal. But um, what Balaam said was not prophetic. What Pharaoh said was not out of the mouth of God. And a lot of people take comments from the scriptures, like Gamaliel's, as I've said before, which wasn't from God at all, and they say, well, if it's of God, it'll stand. If it's man, it'll fall. Totally ignoring the fact that God never said it. Or they take Jethro's principle. He was a priest of the Midianites, and they apply it to the church, which is totally unbiblical. He's a heathen. And then they put churches in cell groups and little groups, and totally from a heathen origin, and totally against Scripture, God never said that. Years later, you find he, he anointed 70 to look after the children of Israel. Holy Ghost fell on them and a spirit of prophecies fell on them because God put on them the same spirit he put upon Moses. And with the Jethro principle, they received nothing of God because it wasn't God at all who spoke it. You need to understand uh, what's wrong and what's right and what's biblical and what isn't. And uh, Jesus makes it very plain. He says, this is it. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so he limits what's to be taught to what he commanded then. He doesn't say, teach them everything. There are certain things you don't want to teach people. I don't want to teach people to become Jews because that's not what they're called to be. They're called to be Christ followers and that's it. I don't want to teach them to um, go into ritualism and form um, because it's wrong but you've got to understand the biblical principles and so I thought it'd be good as we've had to do it 
uh, to pull out some of these things and impart it to you. There is a book that I've ordered, uh, it'll soon be in the um, bookshop, on spiritual warfare from the Puritan point of view. I didn't realize I was a Puritan until I read the book. Um, and then I thought, great, and they got it right. Jesus told his followers to go, teach, baptize all nations. It was on the basis of the fact that he got all power in heaven and earth. That's why you can do it. And if you're not a person who believes in Jesus' total sovereignty and total power, you could never be a preacher. If you didn't believe that the devil was totally and completely defeated, you could not be a preacher. You couldn't be. Because the whole basis of going out to preach is that all power has been given to him. All authority is given to Christ in heaven and earth. And so he made that a foundation stone as it, before he ascended into heaven of our ministry. A total revelation of Christ's total victory. And without it, you're lost. Because as soon as you face opposition, you'll go down. As soon as you get in problems, if you believe the devil has power, you're a fool, you're not a Christian, or at least you're not living in a Christian life, uh, and you'll get snared by the devil. He's only got to throw one or two things at you, and you're down. One thing that Jesus made plain to his followers, that he'd chosen them for the purpose of evangelization. Uh, in John 15, verse 16, he says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that you should go and bring forth much fruit, and that your fruit should remain. One thing you've got to get clear in your heart and mind is that no one of you chose yourself, God chose you. God says, I, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And the choice is God's. That's why in the Bible you read, many are called, few are chosen. And the chosen ones are the ones that go. And it's lovely to know when you've had a real regeneration experience and you begin to understand uh, that it was God that chose you. God sought you out. Why you? Because he chose you. Why? That is an inexplicable thing. But God in his infinite wisdom and internal purposes chose you. You didn't choose him. He chose you. I'm absolutely 100% Calvinist like Jesus was. And I'm totally uh, a believer in the sovereignty of God. Because Jesus made it plain to all his followers. He said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You remember when he calls the apostles and the stories in the gospels, he finds them fishing and he says, follow me. 
One under a tree said, follow me. He always called them. He, he went out and chose them. Prayed all night before he made his choices, but he chose them. Uh, and they didn't choose him. He chose them. And always, you, in a church, you'll get those who, who come, who are part of the multitude, but then you'll get the chosen ones. And they're kind of, they get there because God puts his hand on their life and chooses them and that's it. And you can't make yourself chosen. You either are or you're not. Uh, it's one of the amazing things. I've always wondered how it was that God in all eternity worked it all out it's a great mystery why does God select one person you know the enemies your enemies are those of your own household sometimes you find the reality of it and why why does God pick out one individual say that's it well he does and I don't think you'll ever have the answer why. When I look out at some people, I wonder why. And then I realize, well, God's God. It's amazing how God does it. What is it about God that, well, all power's been given to him. Now, if all authority and power's given to him, he chooses who he will. That power of the Holy Spirit operates only when he wills it to. Don't ever think it operates uh, universally. It doesn't. And then he said, look, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go forth and bring forth much fruit and that your fruit should remain. It's clear from the scripture that it relates to the spread of the gospel of truth. Uh, the ingathering of souls into the kingdom. He makes that very plain. But he makes it plain on the basis of choice. I want you all to know, God chose you. You didn't choose him. And it's in the same passage that Jesus sets out the requirements for fruitfulness. And he, he draws on the analogy of, of the vine and the branches and the fruit bearing trees. And he says what happens to a branch that doesn't bear fruit? Cut off. And so it's essential that everyone realizes you've got to be fruit bearing in your life. If you're one of these people that thinks I'll just ride along, you... <laughs> You won't ride along for long, you get in a hot place. You've got to bear fruit. But one thing he doesn't do, in all of his kind of remarks, Jesus, when he talks of the church and he talks of the vine and he talks of the branches, do you notice he talks of his father being the husbandman? Where does he talk of the devil? He doesn't. In fact, there's no mention of the devil at all. It's abiding in him that produces fruit. 
It's nothing to do with finding some uh, theoretical spirit that's kind of bobbing around somewhere. That isn't in scripture. That's in people's imaginations and over-vaunted pride and arrogance. If I were to um, take um, what, uh, who was it? I think it was pink. No, it wasn't pink. It was um, who was it? I can't remember who it Bruce. It was Bruce, F.F. Bruce. What then would one say most nearly corresponded to the structural abiding of the branch in the tree? We reply, abiding in the doctrine, that's the teaching of Christ, in the teaching he taught, and acknowledging him as the source whence it has been learned. In other words, abide in me means hold and profess the truth I've spoken to you and give yourselves out merely as my witnesses. The other abiding, on the other hand, signifies the indwelling of the Spirit of Jesus in the hearts of those who believe. Jesus gave his disciples to understand that while abiding in his teaching, they must also have his Spirit abiding in them, that they must not hold fast the truth, but be filled with the Spirit of truth. The two abidings cannot be separated without fatal effects. In other words, you must not only hold fast the truth, but be filled with the spirit of truth. There's two abidings. Truth gets inside you when God reveals it, but not only that, you've also got to have the spirit of God abiding within you. On the day of Pentecost, the two abidings happened. They only knew what Jesus had taught them. Their minds were open to understand the scriptures. On the day of Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And at that point, they became living witnesses. Up to that point, they knew truth. And no one can ever witness to Jesus without being baptized in the Holy Ghost. And one of the initial evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit is you speak in tongues. It's one of the uh, evidences. Not the only evidence, but one of them. And it's necessary to be filled with the Holy Ghost. You must be. Uh, you must be baptized in the Spirit. And knowing all the truth without being baptized in the Spirit uh, means that all you do is you can acknowledge what's in the Bible, but you can't really, in any power and authority, lead anyone else to Christ because you yourself haven't got that power and authority that God said you should have. And when you're truly born from above and you're baptized by one spirit into one body, then you can witness with power not only to the truth but to the life that you now have. It's the life of Christ within you. And without that, it's just words. There's a lot of preachers that get up 
who speak words, and the words might be true, but if they haven't got the power and authority, the Holy Ghost, it's just words. And in the end, it won't produce fruit. Fruit is produced by the combination of the truth and the spirit. Is that plain? Huh. Now, in the Old Testament, people had the Holy Spirit come upon them. But he was almost, it was an anointing. And a lot of people take the typology of the Old Testament, like King David had the Spirit come upon him. Uh, anointings came upon people. That was an external thing. And that was Old Testament, Old Covenant, Old, Old Testament prophets. Um, sometimes they just lived like normal men. Uh, Samson, he was fine while the Spirit of God was upon him, but when the Spirit of God left him, he was just a man with normal strength. When the Spirit of God came upon him, he had supernatural strength. Uh, all the time in the Old Testament, there was a coming of the Spirit and a going of the Spirit. And that's it. But when you're in the New Covenant and you're truly born from above, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you and he never leaves you. He abides with you always. And you need to abide in the vine, which is the truths that Jesus taught, and walk in those truths. That's why the scripture makes it very plain uh, that if you continue in my truth, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But the condition is you've got to abide and walk in the truth. It's not a matter of taking anything. Uh, just being filled with the Spirit without living what God intends you to live is useless. That's emotionalism. If you can think you can just divorce your life from God's commands, you're crazy. On the other hand, you can have all God's commands without the Spirit, and that's dry and empty too. Has to be both experiences always functioning together all the time and that is why being baptized in the Holy Ghost is so important and, and you've got to walk in the spirit got to live in the spirit got to know the reality of the power of the spirit of God but you've also got to walk in the truth everything Jesus commanded you've got to walk in there's no option of one or the other. Uh, the idea that you can be spirit-led without the word is stupid. Totally. Uh, there's too many people that go around saying, oh, well, I don't need my Bible. You know, I've got the spirit within that wrote the book. You might have the spirit within that wrote the book, but if you don't walk in what Jesus commanded his disciples to do, and you don't know what he said, and you don't, hear what was spoken by God and is written in the book, then you are living an unchristian life. And I doubt that the spirit you received is the spirit of God. You got the wrong spirit. Because the one thing I found the Holy Ghost does is he puts within a heart 
a, a hunger for the word and an understanding of a word and a delight in the word of God. And if that's not in you, don't call yourself a Christian because truthfully you're not. Got the wrong spirit. Is that plain? Is that plain? I don't want anyone to go away and think I didn't say it, I did. I want you to know if you don't have a real hunger and love of the word of God and a love of the truth, you are not a Christian. End of story. And if you have a dead knowledge of the scripture without the spirit of God, you're none of his. If you're not a different person than the person you were born and you haven't had a total nature change within and the Holy Ghost hasn't come and got hold of you, you're not a Christian. You might be religious, but you're not a Christian. Can't be. Because we're all baptized by one spirit into one body, the scripture says, and that's it. And you don't belong to the body of Jesus Christ if you're not baptized in the Holy Ghost. You cannot be, according to the Bible, which I happen to believe. And so should you if you were a Christian. Once the um, Holy Spirit came, the disciples became different types of people. They were dispirited and dispersed, if you like alliteration. Um, when Jesus was crucified on Calvary's tree, there was a horror struck them. They thought, hey, and they fled. John stayed. Mary, the mother of Jesus, stayed. But the rest ran. Couldn't take it. Uh, and it was only after Jesus' resurrection, when he appeared to them, that the joy returned and the realization he was alive. Uh, do understand it wasn't up to the day of Pentecost that they lived in fear. Uh, after his resurrection, once they had seen him, they lived with great joy and gratefulness of heart and they were continuing in the temple praising God and giving thanks, it says in Luke. They weren't locked in an upper room in fear. The end of Luke, you'll realize... They were with singleness of heart and great joy, praising God. And um, when they were in the upper room, they were in the uh, room in the temple, uh, and the word in the house is actually translated in the Greek temple. But lots of people don't read their Bibles, and they hear something said in a church about fear and, you know, all the disciples. Well, we might as well look at it while I'm mentioning it. Turn with me to the back of Luke, just so you know. It's there. Because Luke wrote Acts, you know. The mythology. Okay. Uh, in verse 46 and he said unto them thus it is written 
And thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witness of these things. And behold, I send you the promise of my, fa- of my Father upon you, but tarry you in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were, what? Continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. The when Jesus ascended, and from ascension... So the day of Pentecost was how long? Well, that's wonderful. Bible scholars. Forty days from the day of resurrection to the day of ascension, 40 days. Ten days on the 50th day, day of Pentecost. Ten days. All right? Okay? It was when the day of Pentecost was fully come. And um, they're all with great joy in the temple. And they're in an upper room praising God, giving thanks to God. That's why the multitude came together so quick. Because the noise filled the house. And that word, as I said in the Greek, is translated temple. Uh, unfortunately, it's not in the authorized version, but then sometimes the authorized version isn't always correct. You know, it's rare that it isn't, but on occasions there are better translations. Uh, but the NIV is not one of them on, on this particular instance. Holy Ghost came, and they basically began to be witnesses boldly in the authority of Christ, in the life of Christ, and also in the teachings of Christ. So they had that twofold anointing and understanding. But at Pentecost, as you know, there were 120 people. And just in case you think Mary, the mother of Jesus, was special, she actually was in the upper room and she needed to be baptized in the Holy Ghost like the rest of them. Um, So she was. When you look at Acts, you discover that the only reason they received the Holy Spirit was for one purpose. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you Power for what? To be a witness. Uh, And basically, to be baptized in the Holy Ghost gives you the authority to be a witness to Jesus Christ, to his life, his resurrection, and his ascension, and the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit. We're to be witnesses, every one of us, and we're to be fruitful witnesses. In other words, we can by our lives and by our words tell people there's a God who heals, a God who delivers, a God who forgives, a God who's paid the price. And we speak of redemption and what Christ has done for us. 
That's what we're called to do. That's the whole purpose of our lives, to spread the gospel to every nation, to every kindred, and to every tribe. It's not to sit back and say, well, now I'm saved, great. We've got to spread it. But you can't share what you haven't got. If it doesn't work in your life, don't try and share it with someone else. If you're a mess, don't share your mess with someone else. Get saved. Get filled with the Holy Ghost. Get your life sorted out. You can't share what you haven't got. No good going to someone and say, well, I believe in a miracle working God. Well, what's he done for you? Well, I'm miserable. I'm depressed. Well, if you're depressed and you've got bondages in your life, sort yourself out. Go to the living God and say, look, what you promised hasn't happened. I need reality. Got to be straight with God. If you're not, and if you're one of these people that think you can go out and share and somehow God's going to be grateful for you sharing, well, you know, I've got saved, I've let God down many times, but he's never let me down. That is a testimony of blasphemy. That's not a testimony to God. Well, everyone sins, don't they? It just so happens I have weaknesses. Well, get rid of them. Get Christ in your life. Become a born-again Christian. And if you live in Romans 7, that which I would not that I do, then you need to get saved and get into Romans 8 where there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. And if you're still under the law of sin and death, you're certainly not set free with the spirit of life and righteousness and you need to get saved. Uh, Romans 7 is talking to someone that knows the law, how the law have dominion over a man as long as he lives. Well, die and get resurrection life in Christ and then you're set free from the law of sin and death. All right? Is that plain? You with me so far? I'm just trying to explain a few things to you. Um, you know, sin's the problem, not the devil. Devil's never been a problem. Since Jesus and Calvary, the devil's no problem. You're your problem. Your self-will, your self-adulation, your self-desire, your own desires, they're your problem. It's nothing to do with the devil. And you've got to lay down your life that you might have his life. If you want to be Jesus' disciples, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. You've got to walk the way he intends you to walk, all right? Is that plain? Self-will is the road to destruction. Jesus defeated Satan fully and finally at his death and resurrection. I I hear people talk about, oh, you know, you've got to overcome the devil. You couldn't overcome the devil if you tried. You really couldn't. And if God left you with the task, you'd lose. 
He beat him well and truly on Calvary's tree. And when he rose from the dead, he broke the pangs of death. And the devil thought he was going to kill and destroy. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus has done it all. And we can walk and live in that victory. And believe in that victory. All authority is given to him. He's alive. He's risen. And so I'd never ever try and if I resist the devil, if the devil came, I just resist him. He's going to run. He knows who has authority and who doesn't. He knows he has no rights. Hey, he knows he's only in for a beating any time he comes round. If you're a Christian and you walk in the life of God, he's lost. He's got no hope. If he can deceive you and make you think that somehow he has authority, then you're in trouble. You're believing a lie. But the truth is Christ has done it all. That's what the faith is. Believing what he's done. Lockyer states, Satan was defeated prophetically in Eden actually at Calvary and is defeated practically in our lives as day by day we exercise faith in the overcoming principle. I'll read it out again. This is Lockyer. He says, Satan was defeated prophetically in Eden, actually at Calvary, and is defeated practically in our lives as day by day we exercise faith in the overcoming principle. What's the overcoming principle? All authorities given unto me in heaven and on earth. And Christ lives in me. And greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You have the authority of God living within you in Jesus Christ. You have the one who's almighty. And when you walk by faith in that reality... The devil doesn't stand a chance. And when you start trying to fight demons and devils and think you've got to overcome them, you've already surrendered your position in faith and you've walked out of what God's done into the devil's lie and you'll never win that way. You'll be deceived more and more and more because the just shall live by faith. And if you don't live in what God's done and the reality of what he's done, then you end up in delusion. That's why you've got demon chasers. Devil's been defeated 2,000 years ago. I'm not about to start trying to wage a war that doesn't exist. The real battle in evangelism is not with demonic powers at all it's contending with the truths of the gospel and contending for them biggest problem i have and find i have is people just don't believe what jesus did two thousand years ago country they're discussing taking healing out of the atonement they're saying that they don't believe that healing anymore was part of the atonement well that's blasphemy wigglesworth would do his pieces if he was still alive I mean to say that healing is part when Christ died he took 
my sin, my sickness, my disease, my bondage into his own body. And he died to it. Third day he rose again victorious. Hey. And to exclude healing from the atonement is blasphemy. By his stripes you were healed. 2,000 years ago. This has been defined by Drummond as not mere ignorance of Christ, but rather the willful rejection of the Lord and his salvation. He cites um, Stauffer as commenting, it was necessary that the Holy Spirit himself should open our eyes and continues, this forensic work of the Spirit is absolutely essential to see unbelief for all that it really is in God's sight. Why don't you do what Jesus did? He said, my disciples cannot fast while the bridegroom's with them. Uh, and if Jesus lives in you, you've got a problem. You can't fast. If you're a faith man, but if you're one of the unbelievers that think you can add to salvation and what Christ did on Calvary's tree, then go without your food. Won't help you. That's part of magic. That's what the heathen did. I, I love to look at the Bible and find the only fast God ever prescribed was the Day of Atonement. The rest of the time he said eat. Do you know, he sent manna down from heaven while they were in the wilderness, and it calls it the church in the wilderness with Moses, Forty years, day in, day out, he sent enough food for them to eat every day, didn't he? And on the sixth day, he doubled portions so they wouldn't have to miss out on Sunday. Hmm? Have you ever wondered why it was? Years later, when Jesus comes, he says, the, the Pharisees fast twice a week. Where did they get that from? Not from God. It was from the precepts of man. They adopted heathen customs. And in the um, times between Malachi and Matthew, the 400 silent years into testamental times, what happened, they adopted all the Babylonish ideas of fasting, cutting yourself... Uh, and you know they, they try to cast demons out by killing fish, taking the liver and getting it to smoke they'd, they'd get it burning and the smoke would go over the demon possessed person and then the demon was meant to go out in the smoke and they had all kinds of rituals they'd go through and all kinds of relics they'd use and they'd gone into the same things as the heathens around them and when Christ came, he came to redress that and stop them from doing it. Said, hey, that's wrong. And when he dealt with a demon, he cast it out with his word. When he healed the sick, he did it with his word. None of the ritual. And that's what annoyed the Jews, because that's where the money was, in the ritual. You should be in his name and in his nature and in his life. It's not some little talisman in Jesus' name. And then, you know, the magic. Like, abracadabra, 
That's not it. That's magic. And that's fetishes. They, they, they've even got to, in Jesus' day, they even used the name Solomon to, to, when they were doing their rituals. They used all sorts of saints' names and um, past prophets' names to cast demons out. They all came, and you'll find it in the book of Enoch, uh, and all those other books that were never included in the scripture. They were written in the 400 silent years, and there they were, and they got all these rituals together. And Jesus, when he came, he found the Jews were the most superstitious people on earth. That's why he went at them. He said, oh, you know those guys where the Tower of Asylum fell on them? Do you think they were worse sinners? You see, they were all in superstition. Jesus was tearing down their superstition. When the blind man, they all wanted to know, why was he blind? He was born blind. Was it his, his parents who had sinned or him? And Jesus said, grow up. Well, time and chance happeneth to every man really does that's what the Bible says things happen I don't know why you don't know why but it happens but we have a God who's a saviour we have a saviour who's a healer we have a deliverer his name is Jesus and hey he sorts things out if God be for us who can be against us but it doesn't mean everything goes hunky-dory all the time. If you think that, then you'll lose faith the moment something goes wrong. You know, what Paul and Silas, sitting in prison, they just got arrested, totally wrongly, beaten, flogged, stuck in the stocks in the deepest prison. And they were saying, oh God, what did I do wrong? No, they were singing praises to God and the whole prison house was shaken. Peter, he was in the prison. He was chained to a, a centurion in prison. What was he doing? He wasn't bemoaning and saying, oh God, I don't deserve to be here. He'd gone to sleep. When the angel came to show him out, he had to whack him on the thigh and say, wake up, you snorer. Or whatever he said. And up he got. And he followed him out. And the gates opened and out walked Peter. Don't ever get the idea that somehow the devil is in control. And don't live by superstition. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? It happened because, do you know Calvin said, when a man asks why, he's already in sin. Spurgeon gave a personal testimony of his own conversion. He says this, I knew what sin meant, by my reading, and yet I never knew sin in its heinousness and horror till I found myself bitten by it as a fiery serpent and felt its poison boiling in my veins. When the Holy Ghost made sin to appear sin, 
Then I was overwhelmed with the sight and would fain have fled from myself to escape the intolerable vision. A naked sin stripped of all excuse and set in the light of truth is a worse sight than to see the devil himself. When I saw sin as an offense against a just and holy God committed by such a proud and yet insignificant creature as myself, then was I alarmed. Now that's Spurgeon. He's saying, hey, sin became sin when the Holy Ghost made me aware of what I was doing against God. Total rebellion against God. Now only the Holy Ghost can do that. He came to convince the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. Holy Ghost does that. Spurgeon said there came a day in his life. Now he'd read about sin, heard about sin, but the Holy Ghost only can make you really understand what sin is. And it's horrible. The Holy Spirit demonstrates the possibility of redemption on the basis that Jesus ascended into heaven. He had made a full atonement for sin. Drummond comments, believers are declared righteous because of Christ's atoning work. But goes on to point out, these salvation truths, however, do go against the grain of humanistic pride. Many feel that they can do enough good things to be acceptable in God's sight. That line is the grand satanic deception. It is the blindness of the mere moralist. It is the core of all other world religions and the mindset of the masses. Only the Holy Spirit can cause those scales to fall off one's eyes as he did for the self-righteous Saul of Tarsus. The power of God alone can make people see the efficacy of the work of Christ, their position before God, and the utter need of Christ's righteousness. But that is exactly what the Spirit came into the world to do. He came to reveal the Jesus of the cross. The Holy Spirit also reveals the reality of redemption the power of Christ to judge Satan and overthrow his kingdom is not in the future but was eternally established by his cross and resurrection uh, it was Beasley Murray who says the ejection of Satan from his vaunted place of rule took place as the son of man was installed by God as Lord of creation and mediator of the saving sovereignty of God to the world. Jesus is the power of God. Jesus is the gospel. Uh, Connor says, Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit, was just as essential for the realization in the lives of men of the values of the gospel as was Calvary in the resurrection. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there could be no gospel. Without Pentecost, there would be no gospel so far as our apprehension and experience are concerned. Accordingly, 
Drummond is correct in his conclusion that the witness of the church has power only as the gospel is communicated in the strength and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And then you remember the quote that um, TLO read out uh, from Kittle says this, The preaching of the gospel is the continuation of the saving activity of Jesus Christ. Therefore, proclaimers of the gospel are the continuators of Christ's ministry. Those who preach the gospel stand in the place of Jesus, and they are as he is. The risen Lord associates himself with them and conveys to them his power. In this power of Jesus Christ, you stand in his place, his own powerful presence in the Holy Spirit. He endows his followers with the same power, and they continue his activities in his place, proclaiming his message and working his miracles. The power of the Holy Spirit is essential for everyone. You can't actually share the gospel without being baptized in the Holy Ghost. I, I realize that evangelism outside of the power of the Holy Spirit just doesn't work. Everywhere I've gone in the world, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's South America, anywhere you go, miracles settle the issue. Africa, miracles settle the issue. You can't deny. And Christ intends us to walk in that same authority and same power as Jesus. And we have that same spirit. And we do the same works as Jesus did on earth. And if we don't do that, we have no gospel. That's what it's about. But the demand is, you've got to obey him, you've got to quit sin, and you've got to see sin for what it is. Is that plain? We'll go quiet. Well, I know it's Tuesday night, but is anyone out there? Spurgeon says, the only salvation that can redeem from hell is a salvation that comes from heaven. Eternal salvation must come from an eternal God. Salvation that makes you a new creature must be the work of him who sits on the throne and makes all things new. Salvation the author and finisher of our faith is God. Okay? Uh, that's just a, a tenth part of what I'm doing. Glory to God. One thing I know is we've got to publish. You've got to publish. Because when you publish books, they last. And they go round. You know, if you publish a book in Africa, at least 10 people read it. Uh, and it gets passed round from hand to hand. Uh, and I believe it's the most important thing we've got to do at this time. The books have gone out um, all over the world. Uh, they're published in so many languages. But the most important thing is to get the truth into people's hands.
What they do with it then is up to them. You know, I've got a pastor's meeting on Thursday. It'd be interesting. Um, more and more I'm finding pastors just don't know who to turn to, where to go. This Thursday, got a load of pastors coming, and I find that they're hungry. They're hungry for something that makes sense. They're fed up with what doesn't work. And the true gospel works, always. Okay, well, there's, um, let's hold our hands to heaven. Okay, Father, I just thank you. You always hear us. Lord, I just pray in your grace and your love, you'll reach out, break every chain, snap every feather. Lord, and send your healing power in Jesus' name. Amen.